You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remsa Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics podcast at secondprintcomics.com. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, we're just jumping right into it. I think I've made a giant mistake with my life, Dominic. I move to one of the most purple liberal states, one of the coldest states in the country, to get away from Virginia. And then suddenly, within the same year, they decide to get their shit together and vote for actually some pretty decent candidates turning the entire state red. Meanwhile, I'm here and it's 37 degrees outside and not Northern Virginia, 37 degrees. This is, I will punch you in the face and like curb stomp your mother cold. I actually had to go out the other day and go get a new jacket because suddenly I realized none of my cold weather stuff was significant for Wisconsin. Very sorry. No, it it could be much worse. Uh, Wanted to bring you on today because we live in a very peculiar time. It's almost a tale of two states. Uh, First off, how are you liking living in D.C. right now? So thanks for having me again, Ramsey. It's always great to be back on your show. Uh, Last time we spoke, I remember we were discussing this whole issue of me staying in California and why am I doing it and here I am I moved to Virginia well I mean life happens I moved here to continue my education uh, at George Washington University Law School and I love it so far honestly Um, there are a lot of elements here that remind me of California like bad policies and homeless people homeless people oh my gosh don't even bring it up because I was like walking the other day in uh, Constitution Avenue near, um, you know, where everything, all the monuments are and like everywhere I saw homeless tents. And this wasn't there in 2019 when I was interning in D.C. So that's new. Um, But aside from that, um, everyone is as friendly and social as California, even more. And so it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm so far away from um, my people. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, there's a big group of Iranian Americans who live in Northern Virginia, D.C. area. Oh, it's huge. You you have some of the, and well, I mean strange, I don't mean strange. I'm just going to say the most random 
like you have the most random uh, collection of minority groups in Northern Virginia. Have you met any Armenians? Not really. The Armenians are big there. The Armenians are big there. Uh, Have you been to, uh, have you been to Springfield? Mm -mm. So Springfield has, um, has like the shopping center and it's nicknamed little Saigon because that has the largest population of Vietnamese refugees that came here during the fall of Saigon during the Vietnam war. And in the middle of the shopping plaza, they have the flag of Saigon right underneath the American flag. That's very interesting. We have the same um, group of Vietnamese in Orange County, California. So, and it's also called little Saigon and they're extremely conservative in terms of voting. It's um, it, it, it's, it's a strange place because I, I lived in Northern Virginia since 2008 before moving out this year. And for the most part, it was always like the people that move there, like from out of the country, especially whether it's, it's the Indian population, which is I think the largest minority group in Northern Virginia right now, uh, whether it's um, the Indians or whether it's the Vietnamese, the Koreans, not so much anymore, but um, you know, people from Central and Latin America, they, they come to Northern Virginia and they're extremely conservative. And I always thought it was incredibly funny because the majority of the white population there has just really shifted towards a much more vocally progressive worldview. And it was so strange because like, if you wanted to get a job, it used to be, if you wanted to get a job, if you wanted to live somewhere safe, if you wanted to live somewhere that had a very healthy middle class, you could do that in Northern Virginia and even parts of Southern Maryland. And then it was over the last 10 years that that really began to change. And I don't know what led to this recent election that suddenly everyone is an expert on, because I'm still looking at it, trying to get my understanding around it. But it, it seemed that with the lockdowns, it seemed that with a lot of the stuff going on, it was the minority population, the minorities population throughout Virginia that ultimately voted for conservative policies to flip the state. You saw this with Hispanic men. You saw this with Korean men and women. You saw this pretty much across the board, other than like the Indian population, which overwhelmingly voted Democrat in both, you know, in terms of both men and women. Um, I, I think it's so funny because nobody was expecting this to come out of Virginia. People were looking at California for the past year, and you and I have spoken about California, and I never thought Larry Elder or any Republican had a chance of flipping California, but people were like, this is our chance. Newsom is unpopular. So California stays blue and people are surprised. Virginia flips red. And suddenly everyone is just like, oh, yeah, this was bound to happen. And I'm like, nobody thought this was bound to happen. Nobody thought that. Even a week ago, nobody thought that. It, it's, a, it's such a weird time to have uh, moved like we have, because now I'm here and I'm looking back and I'm like, I have no clue what happened. Are you surprised that it took you leaving California to go to another blue state to finally see that state flip towards some degree of common sense? Well, I think the universe owed it to me. (laughs) (laughs) So what does um, that say about me then? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you had your time, man. <laughs> I had my time. Everyone yeah. was joking about me. They're like, it's the Remso curse. As soon as you stopped voting in the state and moved out, finally the state decided to get its act together. Yeah. Or maybe it was me. I came here and the universe was like, 
you spent most of your life living in Iran and then you moved to California. You deserve this. Here the the you swap go. needed to happen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, um, it's actually interesting that you bring up California because my take on this issue, just the election in California and also the election in Virginia is both of those elections have a lot in common. And I haven't seen a lot of people talking about those two being so similar in terms of what happened. Both of those elections were extremely issue oriented and not as partisan as you think, which is extremely rare in American politics because most of the voters vote within the partisan line. No matter how many issues there is in the world that people care about, but majority of the voters actually fall within that percentage that always vote with their party. And but on the other hand, th this time we've witnessed in both California and Virginia, voters turned to issues and that's how they decided to elect people. Even in California, we saw that people who filed for recall were not necessarily Republicans, all of them. Most of them were small business owners. It started from Republicans being angry about what is going on in the state of California by handling the COVID-19 pandemic since the beginning of 2020. However, it ended up being something bigger than just a Republican outrage. It was a lot of normal people who actually never voted. It was a lot of minority groups actually going out there because their businesses were hurt by policies that the Democrats in California put in place. So that's how it happened. Like the recall election in California was something extremely unexpected. Like we didn't expect that it even would get on the ballot. It's same were, thing. Were you surprised with the number of people that came out to vote against it, though, because it was still under like 40 percent that actually voted to recall Newsom. I wasn't surprised by that, but I was surprised to see that it even got into a recall. You know, that's one of the rarest instances in the history of our country. We only had four recall elections and you would not expect something like that to even get to such level in a state like California. So that by itself was a really big step. And it was a very, very red flag for Democrats that you guys' time is over if you keep doing what you're doing. But as I mentioned earlier, it was very issue oriented. A lot of voters in California still wanted the handouts by the California government. And um, so that's why they wanted to keep Newsom. A lot of them hated Newsom, but they still didn't want to see a Republican getting elected. So they that was their issue. They wanted to keep Newsom in office because they hated Republicans. So we saw a lot of that impacting the election in California. And also same thing in Virginia. I have been following the news ever since I've got here. And there, as we all know, the issues in Loudoun County, uh, education board and everything going on with the whole school choice thing in the state of Virginia has been one of the most contentious issues amongst parents. And I guess that also had a very big impact in steering voters who were not necessarily Republican to vote for a non-democratic candidate. Yeah, there, there's a there's a number that I have seen very few people bring up. I think the only other person who brought it up is is my brother, ironically. And my brother works more Virginia campaigns than than I did when I worked there. 
And um, we were talking on election night, and I remember calling my father the next day, and he was still trying. He voted Republican, but he was still trying to understand. Like, I don't, I didn't understand why it flipped so big. And the number I gave him was 5%. 5% of Virginia voters are independents who lean left, who typically do not vote outside of non-presidential election years. These are the 5% of people that may vote Democrat, but are not necessarily big fans of the Democrats generally. They just typically identify as liberals. And we saw this in 2013. 2013 was the last year we had, well, technically it was 2014, but like 2014 was the last year we had a man named Robert Sarvis on the ballot. Robert Sarvis is one of the most successful third-party candidates in, in, I think, modern electoral history. He ran as a libertarian for governor in 2013, got 7% ran for U.S. Senate in 2014, got 4%. Every libertarian that ran up until 2017 got less than 1%. They don't even matter. But what Robert Sarvis did was he really went after that 5% independent left-leaning population of Virginia that's typically middle-class, that's typically middle-aged, that's typically has you know, a college education and children. He went after them and he said, you're going to go ahead and give me a chance in this non-presidential year. And because of that, they went with him in 2013 and 2014. And that scared Democrats. And that also scared Republicans because Republicans typically don't get more than like one to 2% of an independent vote in a statewide election. Um, Independents have almost virtually gone Democrat every election since 2014. But like you said, uh, Glenn Youngkin you know, and, and this is me adding this part in, like he started when I first heard about him, I wasn't necessarily excited. He seemed like an Ed Gillespie type. The Republicans kept, kept giving us this mushy, moderate dude who was just kind of awkward and no one really trusted him on anything. And Glenn Youngkin seemed like him, but with more personality. But the thing that he understood was that if he went to where voters were, they would meet him there. And ultimately, because of the education issue, because of the vaccine issue, because of the lockdowns, you know, the, the threat of the lockdowns happening again, because of the def- defund the police efforts and everything else, people looked at him and they're like, oh, my gosh, we know that Terry McAuliffe, who was the governor, is running this extremely progressive campaign compared to who he was even four years ago. But Glenn Youngkin is meeting us where we are. And because of that, he won that 5% that he needed to get above the board. And then we look at Fairfax County where Republicans haven't won an election there since like 2009. He needed, I think it was Larry Sabato from University of Virginia. He went ahead and said, Glenn Youngkin literally needs 35% of Fairfax County, Virginia, the most populous county in the, in the state to win the election. And Glenn Youngkin literally won that 35% of Fairfax County. So now this has me confused. And, and and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because I, I feel more disconnected from my home state now than ever before in my life. But have liberals finally understood that maybe, maybe telling parents that they don't have control over their kids' education, telling them that you can fire people based on the vaccine status, threatening to lock down the economy again, is probably not what you want to hear from your candidates. I absolutely agree with everything you said, because 
a lot of the anal- analysis around this election has been about how the entire messaging of the Democratic platform has ran its course in the state of Virginia. And it just did not resonate with their own voters even because a lot of the issues that were happening in the state of Virginia were very close to people's hearts on a very like personal level. It wasn't like, you know, abortion or some of these like abstract ideas that maybe normal people don't deal with on a daily basis. And it's just about like ideology. It was about their children's lives. It was about their careers. It was about their health choices. And when you get to that level, voters will pay attention to what you say. So that video of McAuliffe that said, I don't think parents should tell the schools what to teach their children. I think that really hurt him when he said that. And Youngkin capitalized on that single line a lot in his ads. And they also ran a lot of ads everywhere in the state of um, Virginia. So I was like seeing their ads all the time on my Hulu constantly. So um, another thing to also remember is this election broke a lot of demographic myths that minority groups tend to turn more Democrat or, you know, white people tend to turn more Republican. This was one of those elections that, that did not fall within that narrative. A lot of parents that come from diverse backgrounds, including Indian, Persian, um, Arabic, they they all voted for, they, they wanted to see their voice be heard. They wanted to have a voice in their children's education. And of course they would not support something like that. And also remember a lot of things that they were trying to push like critical race theory or sex education in public schools in um, Virginia, they had a lot of pushback from a lot of parents, including parents who came from other backgrounds aside from just, you know, American. Um, those had a very, very big impact on how this election turned out because the parents did not really like how the Democrats actually handled their opinion. And um, so all of these things considered. Again, education had a very, very big role in the result of this election, I would say even more than anything else. And then we go to all the vaccine mandates and mask mandates and all these restrictions on businesses. So Virginia was one of the few states that enjoyed a little bit of a more freedom during this time. We did not have a mask mandate in Virginia in the past couple months, since I've been here actually, versus in other states like DC and Maryland, there are strict mask mandates and uh, capacity at the venues. So, and that's thanks to the Republicans in the House of Delegates that put pressure on the governor to not do that. And people saw how that impacted their businesses in a good way. I don't know if you were following some of the outrage against the DC mayor, but Gyms in D.C. filed complaints against Mayor Bowser, saying that her mask mandates in in D.C. has hurt their businesses because bars and restaurants are exempted. Pretty much people can go to bars and restaurants and take off their masks, but at the gyms, they can't do that. So a lot of people ended up going to Virginia gyms, and a lot of gyms in D.C. have lost their businesses. And that's a really bad thing, but it also shows that 
you can, in the state of Virginia, we not only have kept our businesses, but also we've kept our COVID-19 rates pretty low compared to other places. And uh, the vaccination rates have been going pretty well. So all of these consider have showed people that a lot of the restrictions that the Democrats are advocating for is not really going to help them. So people enjoyed this freedom and they wanted to keep it. And the Republicans promised them that they would keep it versus the Democrats said that we will impose more restrictions if we take office and people don't like that. Yeah, I, I'm not, I, I'm still very, very skeptical of a Republican administration because the last Republican administration we had was uh, Bob McDonald, who was elected in 2009. And because of the horrendous administration that he ran, he cost uh, Republicans control over the state for, for more than a decade. Uh, he raised gas taxes. He raised sales taxes. Um, he made it more expensive to live in the state. And, you know, largely when it came to the issues of, of gun rights and property rights and things like that, he largely let um, the left really dictate that. And I don't think that's going to happen with uh, Glenn Youngkin. I really don't think so. I think I think conservatives have more of a stake in the current Republican Party of Virginia than the moderates did 10 years ago, um, because ultimately it came down to do you have the right to make a livelihood? I mean, as much as I think that Northern Virginia didn't want to change prior to the lockdowns, when the lockdowns became personal, when they felt it, as you mentioned, when it finally became something that directly affects their lives, I think that's when they understood that's when they understood that um, that this is actually no longer in the realm of theory. This is actually our lives now. So I, I'm really optimistic that Glenn Young can, can do well. But, you know, I also thought the same thing about Matt Bevin in Kentucky. And Republicans, even in Kentucky, didn't like Matt Bevin because he made the state more expensive to live in. So I'm not I don't want to tell people that, like, everything in Virginia is going to get better. But what I hope is that the next election cycle, because I, I, I joke about this. I say God hates Virginia because we have an election like every year. But like two years from now, Youngkin and the Republicans in the House of Delegates are going to have to assess whether or not they actually did a good job. Because things can flip so fast back to blue. And I hope people don't forget about that because I feel that short that voters have such a short-term memory. They could have gone through all this work to get something monumentally fantastic accomplished, which they've done. And then they just forget about it. And then they all focus on some other issue. And then the Democrats come in and then they're going to lock you out of your business and, you know, Make your kids wear five masks walking through school three days a week again. That's and, what I'm worried about. Yeah, and I think all of those are very important. A lot of um, people, uh, parents have been really concerned about how their kids, where their kids' education is going. And Fairfax, Loudoun County are two of the best public school districts in the country. And I mean, parents move here to send their kids to all these best schools. Oh, I went to I went to a top 20 uh, public school. In, in Centerville. I mean, when I, when I was, when I was going through FCPS uh, through middle and high school, like we were top 20, but even then because of the teachers and we don't have a teacher's union in Virginia, we have a teacher's association, uh, which kind of acts the same way. But I mean, even then like ACT scores were going down, GPAs were going down, college admittance was going down. Like this was, I, 
this, a lot of these trends were starting before the lockdowns even happened. And I hope people realize that because I have been at least noticing that for 10 years. And I feel like now it's only catching up to people. They're like, oh yeah, things weren't completely great before all this. Well, the whole issue about public school is, is a whole place to have a lot of debates over. But I also live in Herndon, Virginia, which is like 30 minutes from Centerville. So um, I can totally see why this can become an issue a lot for the voters, because, again, a lot of parents here are paying a very high price in housing and taxes so they can send their kids to all these schools that are have a great reputation and then when they're not getting what they want of course they're not going to be happy and as we have seen um you definitely heard about this sexual assault case in Loudoun County yeah that has turned into a whole thing yep did you did you see what the mother of the of the boy said yep holy shit I think we used to call that slut shaming at some point like, my yes. God, when I saw, I mean, this, this woman, and I, I saw it on, uh, on, Fox, on Fox News, the woman of the, of the boy who assaulted, and if, if you don't know about this, just Google Loudoun County sexual assault, you'll, you'll find it everywhere. Um, apparently, they had been dating at some point, and it was supposed to be a rendezvous in the bathroom, and that's when it turned into an assault and forcible sodomy. The mother of the boy straight up, went to the parents and said, your daughter's 15 years old. She should be able to defend herself. And it's like, holy shit. Like you, you don't, you don't freaking say that. And I heard the interview of the father with a bunch of media um, outlets. And it was extremely heartbreaking to hear. This is a father who was arrested a few yes. months back during the meeting. It was his daughter who was assaulted. Yes. And here's where it's very sad. The parents complained to school. It wasn't that she didn't talk about it. They told the school, this is what happened. And they did not do anything. They just transferred the kid out of that school, the kid who assaulted the girl. And he ended up assaulting another girl where he transferred and and there are records of the school administration begging the parents of the girl that please don't ruin this kid's life more than it is. So like pretty much telling telling them to shut your mouth and don't take this to authorities because this kid might go to juvie. And I'm like, he he should go to juvie. That's, a, or, that's, that's not a child anymore. That's a sexual predator. Exactly. And the fact that he did it again, that's where it got very troublesome that they knew this kid had issues. And instead of taking care of it, they apprehended another innocent third party who like simply this could have been totally prevented if the school actually took some action. And that, that's such a fair, no, I don't know if, I don't want to say it's a public school thing, but that's like such a Fairfax County Latin school thing though, because that school is like when I was, when I was in eighth grade and I have to apologize right now, because if, if my voice sounds different folks, it's because I'm recovering from laryngitis. So I sound like Darth Vader and a crackhead all at once. But um, <clears throat> uh, when I was in eighth grade, 
I was assaulted by a couple of students and I fought back. And immediately, even though there were witnesses, even though the teacher in the class I was in took my side, the school principal still wanted to suspend me because I fought back. And I have heard hundreds of stories like that throughout Fairfax County and Loudoun County Public Schools. And I've even heard it throughout the country. Um, when I was at Freedom Works in 2015, I did a study that basically showed that the only place other than prison you are more likely to be assaulted in your day-to-day life is a public school in America. And, you know, they 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 brought me, they brought my parents in and they said, well, according to our policy, we have to also suspend your son. And my parents were like, you don't freaking suspend my child. He defended himself. And you're going to treat him like the person who willingly assaulted somebody. Long story short, I wasn't suspended. The other person was. But it was one of those situations where they will, they will defend the most atrocious behavior before they take anything that is remotely a, a strong stance on something that will make the school look bad. And that, and that's why it shocks me that for years, parents didn't want to talk about these things. My friend's parents, who also identified many issues with the schools, like this was not just something that happened because of the pandemic. I think a lot of parents ignored things about both school districts because they didn't want to talk bad about their kids' babysitters. And that when the schools got locked down and when they went to virtual learning and everything else, they were just mad that they had to be around their kids. That sounds mean. That sounds callous. I absolutely stand by that because I heard it far too often. And when I saw these parents yelling at school board meetings a year, about a year ago, it's like, why would you want to stick your kids back there? Why would you want to stick them with those people who are not protecting them? And as sad and horrifying as it is, I feel like what happened with this assault was finally the straw that broke the camel's back on this thing. It's sad that it had to happen, but it had to get to this point for them to finally take it seriously because it was no longer somebody else's kid in another district or another district away. It was your neighbor's kid. It was your kid's classmate. It was your daughter. And now they finally understand it. It's just sad that it had to get to this point for them to stop, to start caring. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, I hope, I hope they don't screw it up. They have such a good opportunity right now. Yeah. Um, my other big fear is that now that we've come all the way, like we see no action and no nothing getting better. I mean, there is a part of me that is like, if someone's there and they just don't do anything, that's still a good thing. <laughs> you know, like Ron Swanson, it's like, yeah. I'm just here, you know, not letting someone else to screw this up. Um, so that by itself has some merits, but we've all seen re- pretty mushy Republicans in our lives in both of our States, both California and Virginia. And, uh, it's not that, oh, every Republican is just an angel and they're going to fix everything. No, <laughs> it can also, they can also cause a lot of harm as well. But I am pretty hopeful in this particular instance because voters actually showed up and they voted for things that was very close and dear to their heart. And I believe if they see 
no results, they will go back and do the same and elect someone who actually will listen to them and will do what they want them to do. So if Yunkin and his crew that just took office not do their job, well, guess what? The voters are coming back for you as well. So the same way they came after Democrats, they will come back for you too. So better do your job as you promised and as go and fulfill the promises you made on your campaign. Um, because that's what really got you the office. And also it was a very expensive election. Oh my God. It was like Terry McAuliffe, who was one of the first people to announce, I'm pretty sure he spent like $17 million. Um, I think even more than that, I read somewhere that they only spent $21 million on ads. Oh my God. Just on that alone. Yeah. That man, like I gotta give it to Terry McAuliffe. Like people forget, like before he was Governor McAuliffe, he was DNC Terry. Like he was he no, he's an organizer. Like he's a businessman. Like he knows, like he was he was raking in millions of dollars in donations. That's still one of the things that surprised me. That you could that you can spend that much money in a race, especially for, for a governor's office. Like, I think Glenn Youngkin, I like Dan Snyder, but like my big thing was like, you know, at the end of the day, whoever raises the most money typically gets the nomination. So like Glenn Youngkin, the one thing that I will say does kind of worry me is that I think we're going to get to the point, and I don't think it's anyone's real fault. I think it's just the whole political system we live in. You're going to have to, one, self-finance your own campaigns. And two, the only people who are really going to be massive contenders are, are the ultra wealthy. Everyone's looking at that, at that truck driver in New Jersey yeah, who, I love who spent like $200 and stuff like that. That's for a race where traditionally you could only spend like a few thousand dollars and be competitive. I, I, I ran a, a West Virginia house of delegates race where we spent $1,400. So like cheap races are still out there. They still exist. But like in Virginia, like in, in the next go around when we have another governor's election, like they're they're easily breaking like 20 30 million dollars each. Yeah, and in a state like California, an assembly race for a state assembly is as much as a congressional seat in any other state. So, if you want to win an oh, assembly shit. seat in California, you should buckle up to run a real like congressional campaign. Um that's how Big it is. And they actually make more money than members of Congress. It's the case also in New York. Representatives in Albany make more money than members of Congress. Is that like a constitutional thing or is that something they could vote on? Their salaries? Yeah. Can they vote on their salaries? Yeah, I think they can cut their own checks out of. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, every state regulates their own, um, you know, politics stuff. So, for example, in a place like New Hampshire, people get paid like hundred dollars for their. They they do that intentionally because they don't want anyone to stay there and and get rich. Yeah, and also not meant to be a full time job. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be a part time job or voluntarily, and in many states that's the case. But in a place like California, New York, or Virginia, um, that's not the case. So even Texas. 
Oh, Texas races can get expensive. Ever since ever since Ted Cruz almost lost to a to Beta O'Rourke in 2018, like those Texas races are going to get expensive. I yeah. see. Te- I I I I have this weird fear that Texas goes blue sooner than later. Like, it I might. Think, I think we're going to see it there a lifetime. It might actually. I I think that's a possibility too, uh, and. I also feel like places like California might start turning red not too far from now. I can see it in the horizon with, with everything. With what happened, happened with what happened there. I mean, I don't think that was the war. I think that was just one battle. Yes, I agree. That was just when like, you were, when you and I were talking a year ago about this, I would have said no way. Now I now I've changed my mind on that. Yeah. And we've been seeing this trend of Republicans having momentum in a state like California since two years ago. Um, You know, as we started flipping some seats in Congress, which was something no one expected to happen in such a bad election year for Republicans. And then their recall and the aftermath and everything, the outrage that the voters had, this thing is not over in California. It's just a beginning for a bigger, scarier trend for the Democrats. And this is not only coming from Republicans, it's coming from angry Californians who are normal people who never vote (laughs) even. So it brought out a lot of people. I was talking to many of my Armenian, Iranian friends that have businesses back home. I mean, back home in California, and they were all complaining about how their businesses have been hurt by states' ridiculous measures that actually failed. We never saw cases dropping in California. It's been one of the worst states. All we saw is more people losing their jobs, more people... Um, having to leave, packing up and leaving the state. I think we discussed this a couple uh, episodes ago. Oh, Uh, because of the homeless crisis alone. Yeah. And also one of the conversations you and I had was about how nonprofits are leaving the state. Maybe like a year ago, I wrote a piece. There there was that, there was that, there was that college that moved. Yeah. Yeah. An entire college just picked up and was like, we're leaving. We're taking our hundreds of millions of dollars with us. Yep. Many parents don't want to send their kids to all these like ultra masking schools anymore. They rather homeschool their children or just leave the state. I mean, same thing that is we're seeing in Virginia also was going on in California. Maybe not as contentious for cultural war, but it was parents concern in every way for how the public schools don't know how to manage the situation. And it's not just the fact that parents don't want their kids to wear a mask or anything. Parents are concerned about their children's health, of course, but they also do not trust the schools to be able to really protect them because they can't. They've shown many times that they can't. And many parents were worried about their children's mental health. I had students last year and I talked to them about how they feel about online school. And some of their 
told me that they prefer it because they just don't like to be around people in school, in public schools. And the fact that they can be at home and do their thing, they prefer that. And they I, I mean, it goes better. down. Yeah, I mean, it goes down to like blanket models. Like, I would never say that I think every child should be homeschooled. And even then, it's like, you know, there's so many options now. There are homeschool co-ops where it's like half the day they go and learn with other students. And then the rest of the topics, they're self-taught or they're taught at home. Like this whole idea that this was going to be like, like in Fairfax County, I remember it was it was hilarious for Fairfax County. The the school superintendent, I'm sorry, the district superintendent basically said that the whole online system on Blackboard, which is how they were doing everything, had failed. And that they had no way of recovering it. And they're just like, oh, sorry. And it's like anyone else would lose their job. He got a raise during the pandemic. And it's like this just this just doesn't work. I mean, the number of kids who are crying because they, you know, they didn't understand something or because they didn't have their teacher there to help them. I mean, this was child abuse on on a grand scale. And, you know, I've, I don't, I don't hate teachers. I feel like that's something that's thrown on libertarians and conservatives. Oh, you hate teachers. No, I like teachers. I hate incompetence. Yeah. And and all this is done. and, And I've seen this more so since I moved here to Wisconsin, like the teachers here, you cannot criticize them. If you cannot criticize somebody, they are exactly the people you need to criticize. Yeah. Um, do you know after you graduate whether you want to go back to California or not? I have an open mind, to be honest. Wow, you're um, way more optimistic than me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I want to move back to Virginia at this point. I'm still like, okay, I want to make sure that you guys don't screw this up now. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. I mean, there is a part of me that is like, no way, I don't want to raise. I mean, I would not go back to Los Angeles preferably unless they pay me really, really well to, for me to do that. But um, again, I have an open mind. There are parts of California that I really love. Like I love Monterey. I love some parts of Northern California all the way in the North. And I personally really like Silicon Valley. Like I would like to work there eventually because the field of law I'm interested has to do a lot with technology. So realistically, that's not really an not a bad option career wise for me, but I also, again, I have an open mind. I really like it here as well. To be honest with you, I'm just very impressed with how things are better in Virginia versus California in so many ways. I mean, with Northern Virginia, especially was like, you know, pre pandemic. And I'll even say like, you know, even during the latter end of the Obama years, like even though things were getting harder, it was still like the best place to live. You yeah. have some of the best food. You've got two airports. You could be from here to New York in like an hour and a half mm-hmm. if you wanted to go, you know, go through that. Um, there's so much you could do, so much culture, so much history, so much nature. I mean, it is really a beautiful place to live. But when you're squeezing the middle class and you're treating people the way that I think most Virginians have been treated the past five years, I mean, it's... Um, it, it's horrifying. And I mean, I remember uh, Northam ran as a moderate. He really did. And he slowly became like the biggest son of a bitch we've ever had to deal with. So it's one of those situations where it's like, you know, I, I, I tell people this. It's like, I didn't want to leave Virginia. It's just that Virginia changed. And I didn't feel that the people wanted to change. And I'm happy here. 
you know, it's a purple state where I feel most people aren't as explicit about their partisan identity as they are back home. They just want to live their life. And, you know, you could make a good living here without a college degree and it's a smaller population. It's just calmer and it's different. But, um, you know, like where Virginia goes is a big indicator. I don't think people have called it a bellwether state for a while, but if it ever was, I hope it is now because I'm not very optimistic about the future. I just hope I'm wrong. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I've missed the fall season. And here it's just so gorgeous to look at all the trees turning these beautiful colors. Have you been to Monticello or Mount Vernon yet? Not yet. Oh, you have to. You have to go to Mount Vernon between now and Christmas. It is the most beautiful place in Virginia. And even Monticello, it's a bit of a drive. I mean, I'd, I'd grab some friends, pack a lunch and go there. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's place is just so beautiful. You've got, this is, I, I'm coming back in a couple of weeks. I'm coming back again in December. And I mean, this is my favorite time of year. It's so beautiful. There is nothing in comparison. Yeah, I agree, honestly. And that really makes it worth it. And also on another note, I just wanted to give some like, you know, gratitude to George Washington University for being such a, good place for like accommodating students at this hard time. Like we've seen like all the craziness coming out of campuses in the past year, like how they are really like forcing students into very bad measures during COVID. Like they don't let them to come to campus. They don't let them, they don't accommodate them the way that they should. And, but for me, it has been like a totally different experience. I tested positive a month ago and they not only like not all, all my professors accommodated me, they the school provided me with all the lectures, uh, with the recordings and professors offered me office hours. It's outside of their normal time. And um, they constantly checked on me and they offered free um, treatment if I needed for COVID. So all of these considered, if it was like, I, I talked to other people in different schools, like none of them provided lectures if you tested positive. And oh, he's my, totally my out brother, of my, my brother is getting his master's at George Mason and he went straight from undergrad to, to, to the master's program. That school is fucked up. I'm surprised. George Mason should be. George Mason. I, I've got another friend who's still doing undergrad there. Like George Mason has made it so it's the exact opposite of the experience you're having. So I'm so happy that it's working out for you. But I mean, that just shows like what, what these schools are doing now is a very deliberate choice and you can either help people or you can make things worse. I know in places like Vanderbilt, even they don't provide people with any accommodation. If you're test positive, you're screwed, like go stay home and you're going to be behind all your classes. And especially in law school, it's not like undergrad that I miss classes and it's fine. I can catch up. No, like I, I can't do that. I can't like catch up by myself, but like none of the other schools that I've been monitoring, they don't provide people with help and they just force them to quarantine for whatever reason. And there's no way for them to be. It's like, almost like it's your fault. It's yeah, exactly. But in our case, it, it has been the other way around. Like school has been very accommodating and um, they have provided 
a lot of assistance for students in such situations. And I'm taking all the reasonable care that I have. And I don't know how like it happened. It was a breakthrough case and I was feeling pretty sick. So, but again, when I went back to school, it was like, hey guys, I was already caught up and um, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So if George Washington Law School could do it, I think a lot of campuses can do it even better but they just decide not to, even public schools, they just decide not to accommodate their students. Uh, I've heard a lot of stories that schools have not only refused to, to like provide children with online learning if they want that, they force them to come to school, but at the same time, they don't let them to like play with their classmates or like talk to their classmates because they have to social distance at all times. So how does that help the students? Like you don't provide them with distant learning, but at the same time, you don't want them to have a real experience um, in their, on their campus. You, or you're just like forcing them into this impossible situation. I mean, what I, I think, um, I don't know if it was Corey Dan. No, it wasn't. I think it was Corey DeAngelis or something. What some some education activist, one one of those people, and he basically put out this study showing that if you were a if you were a public school K through twelve student in in twenty twenty, you were basically back two grades. So you weren't just where you were prolonged; you have actually degressed in material and education. And that even with schools opening back up. Most most classrooms are having to play catch up just to where they were a year ago because the online learning learning and everything didn't keep them up. Yeah. And that's the case even in universities. I was talking to some of the 2Ls and 3Ls on campus, and a lot of them have never taken an in-person exam in law school. Correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't like like for I know this is how it is for my brother's masters. He's he's doing business, but for like law students, like there are some classes that you have to do residentially. There is no online option. Is that right? Um, so for now, the ABA has just mandated all the law schools that you're not supposed to have any like distant learning. I mean, there are some classes that are online, but everything has to be pretty much in person. But there are some credits that require you to like do work, like. If you, it's just internship um, or clinics, well, you have to do work. Maybe your work is virtual, but that also depends. So how, are, how, are, how are people going to take the bar? It's going to be in person now. Yeah. I mean, everything has gone back to in person in the legal world. Last year, it wasn't. And in some states, they even waived the bar for a lot of test takers. So they just admitted anyone who graduated like between a period of time to just state they would be just automatically admitted into the state wow. bar. Or they gave them like a temporary window of like practice that then they could take the bar at some point. And some states kind of like relaxed some bar requirements, like in California. A lot of people that I knew that actually couldn't pass the bar previously, they passed the bar during the pandemic. <laughs> But it's so, so, I mean, that's awesome and screwed up at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I mean, some states like Wisconsin, there's no bar requirement. So you are technically a practicing lawyer if you have your JD from a Wisconsin school. So um, the libertarian side of me doesn't like the bar, exam, <laughs> the barrier to entry into the business. But um, yeah, long story short, in the legal industry, things have been pretty 
in person in terms of like ABA just does not let law schools to go remote. So they just don't have that option. If they do that, then they will not be qualified for a credit. Like if you take a class online, it will be pass, no pass. It won't be a credit score in your transcript. That's the ABA mandate. Um, But on the other hand, like law schools have been really hit by massive applicants last year like the year I applied was like the worst application cycle in the history of law schools that's what they said like they had 400 times more applicants than they had previously some of the schools did um so it was such a bad application cycle for a lot of applicants and maybe it has gotten better this year but last year people just like apply to law school like everyone applied to law schools because no one was working and here we are many super depressed law student well (laughs) yes (laughs) well not us actually surprisingly uh i was actually very impressed by how everyone at george washington is so you know energized and everyone's so friendly but it was just such a rough year for for me personally in terms of like deciding school and deciding everything because law schools wouldn't get back to people right away. Like it, it took me like six months to like hear back from some schools and it was just miserable. And many schools got over enrolled as a result of this uncertainty. Like the admissions officers did not anticipate such a high yield in their applicants, even their acceptances. So it was just rough for everyone. And now we enter this like after limbo situation, they're back. And again, I'm very impressed by my school because they've handled this transition really well. Um, and they're very accommodating. And I know it's not the case for everyone. Yeah. I mean, with, uh, with Mason, as I mentioned, I've, I've been incredibly disappointed with them, but I mean, I, I heard the same thing going on at university of Virginia. They had, they had an overflow of law students in, uh, in 20, at the end of, uh, 2020, uh, for the fall cycle and everything. And uh, a lot of people they just didn't get back to. I mean, what, what's even weirder is like, you know, I, I look at my brother and this isn't, this is not a criticism. It's just something that I've noticed. It's like, he went straight from, from undergrad immediately into his master's. And don't get me wrong. I think if there was ever a time to do so, it was during the pandemic, trying to find a job after that would have been hard. He might as well go to school since he had the the grades and my parents had the resources to help him with this. But at the same time, it's like, you know, we're, uh, I think we're going to see a bubble at one point. And I think it's not going to be anyone's fault. There's going to be like, you know, I took this time to get the degrees, to get the accreditations I need to get a good job. And now as we're getting into really what I feel is the latter end of this post-pandemic, post-lockdown phase of our history, um, you know, I just hope that people are willing to speed up things because, I mean, colleges failed. In, in many regards where they were overpromising people for years, uh, you know, Liberty university um, where people are still donating vast sums of money, which I don't, I don't understand why you would do it. You paid them tuition. Why give them more money? It's like, um, you know, we, we, we've got to, we, we've got to have these schools catch up. So I'm, I'm happy that at least for George Washington, especially in DC of all places, it, it has been good because overall I've just been hearing it's a nightmare across the board. Yeah, I mean, in places like Georgetown, it's been like a dystopian state. And oh, George, Georgetown has always been like 
a, a, a communist like cesspool. I saw a guy walking around just completely like butt ass naked one time in the middle of the day. Oh I've seen I've seen rats take pizza from the cafeteria. <laughs> like Georgetown is not Georgetown. The admissions office is nice and they make you feel poor as hell. But then you actually walk amongst the students and you're looking around and it's like you're the children of millionaires. What the heck is happening? I have nothing nice to say about Georgetown students. I have friends who are Georgetown alumni and I look at them I'm like, how did you get out of there normal? <laughs> but Georgetown is weird as hell. Yeah. So honestly, um, all these things considered, I just want to say that um, it's not it's not terrible in every school, even especially higher education. And but again, we don't see the, unfortunately, George Washington University has been the minority in terms of being good to students and being very accommodating. And uh and some like this is just like the craziest thing. I mean, DC has a mask mandate, so I guess that's what really forces these schools to do that. But I see in a lot of other places. Do, do you they, need to show proof of vaccine to get anywhere? Uh, I have not seen that yet. And even school, um, if you are vaccinated, you submit it. But if you're not for whatever reason, they just ask you to do weekly COVID testing, and. That doesn't come at expense out of your pocket either. The school has testing on site. That's the only thing. But I have not seen, in, I mean, they told us to have your vaccine card with you if you're going around, but I have not seen anyone asking for it. In DC. I mean, that's just, that's just so unenforceable. Yeah, it like is. There's, and there's, no, there's no way they could feasibly do that. And I just think Mayor Bowser has to go. She has really hurt. DC in every way with her nonsensical measures, especially with the mask mandate. The COVID rate in DC is extremely low and the vaccination rate is really high. And this is not helping. It's just really hurting businesses out as we discussed earlier. A lot of gyms have complained and they are going out of business because they're losing customers. Yeah, I don't want to- uh, Freaking Ben's Chili Bowl, which is like a DC staple one of the oldest black owned restaurants in Virginia in, in DC almost went out of business because they couldn't just transition to an entirely takeout model. It's yeah. like ba Bowser Bowser will literally let the city burn itself to the ground to stay in power. And that's not even, that's not even an exaggeration. She let the city burn down. Yeah, like she, she did. Like I remember the, the first mayor of D.C. I remember when I moved in 2007 was Adrian Fenty. And Adrian Fenty is the best mayor of D.C. To, to have served since I was there. And Adrian Fenty lost to Vincent Gray in 2009 or 2010 because Fenty had the balls to say, maybe we shouldn't just accommodate all these homeless people and maybe we should try and get people off of food stamps and go – um, go get jobs. And maybe we need to go ahead and address the facts that our teachers aren't teaching our kids properly in their public schools. And they looked at him and they're like, wow, you're a madman." And they got rid of him. And since then, it's just been this giant, you know, snowball effect that brought us to Bowser. And it's like, you know, elections have consequences. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like people, People need to feel the pain before they actually begin to realize that this stuff actually does matter. 
Yeah, and she's running for her third term. My God. So she'll win uh, too. Like that's the thing. Like there, there's she she's because of that whole uh, DC statehood project thing. You know, she double dips in her salary. <laughs> oh so so because of that, like she has become one of the wealthiest people in DC, who's not a lobbyist. Like she, she's got, she's got like, it's, it's like an infinite money glitch. She's just double dipping everything. She can, it's, it's maddening. We should do an episode about that. Yes. You want, you want, you want to just go ahead and rant on DC statehood. I will, I will go ahead and pull out the bourbon on my end. We will light the world on fire with that because it's one of those things where it's like, I think if DC, I think if Virginia went blue, there would be a larger push to make DC a state. But I think now we're going to see a lot of people starting to really, really fight up against that. It's so freaking stupid. I think, yeah. Well, I honestly, and like a part of me is just like, this is not going to happen like, <laughs> constitutionally. Like, it's just, they're, I don't care how much like money they raise around this. Like it's slogan. a, it's a money laundering scheme. It That's is all it is. It's money laundering funded by taxpayers. Because I feel like DC being not being a state is is gonna be better for a lot of people. Like it would hurt; they would shoot themselves in the leg if they become a state. Because now they are kind of like more independent. Because like they they can do their own thing. Like the mayor has so much power. Like if they become a state, it's just gonna add more layers of bureaucracy, and they'll be part of the federalism. So I think it's even better for them to just keep this campaign going forever. And as you said, like, it's just, I think that's that's what they want to do. I think that's (laughs) what they want to do. They make millions of dollars off of that. The DC city council voted to make it an official initiative within the district of Columbia, which means that that project is city sponsored and everyone on the board of it is Mariel Bowser and half the and half the board. And the reason why it's half the board is because you have to pledge resources and allegiance to Bowser. Because if you want to get on there and get a double paycheck, you had to go ahead and play ball. So the only people who are not on there who are members of the city council are people she doesn't like. It's 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 a it's it's freaking it's one of the greatest criminal operations in America. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way to put it it's worse than so many things yes but um i i got i gotta gargle some salts or something we gotta do that episode on dc statehood uh Tomine, it's always so great having you on thank you for taking time on saturday to talk to me if people want to keep up with everything you're doing especially now since you're part of the blue checkmark mafia how could they do so so you can follow me on twitter at d-e-t-a-h M-I-N-E-H on Twitter. So look me up and I always post memes in cringe. So <laughs> her memes are fire, folks. Her memes are straight fire. All right, folks. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and do me a favor so I could cover my co-pays. Uh, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show and share it with a friend. Please go ahead and check out our awesome sponsors at the beginning of the show. They go ahead and help keep the lights on here and keep me alive so I can survive the Wisconsin winter. As always, be good, be safe, and I'll talk to you later.